The great books are like the Leviathan. By mere exposure, we are changed. Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget. Welcome to Literary Leviathans, hunting the great white whales of classic literature with Timothy and Elizabeth Russell. will be with you always. Welcome back to Literary Leviathans. Today we will be discussing 1984. Oh no, that's scary. Don't don't freak out. Oh, okay. It's okay because Big Brother is watching. Oh, so he'll take care of everything for me. Yes. Oh, good. All you have to do is love Big Brother. <sighs> Wait, but what if I don't love him? You will be made to love Big Brother. Oh. Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing to say <laughs> We're off to that. a great start here. <laughs> Well, anyway, so yeah, I just read 1984 for the first time. And, and this will be interesting because I haven't read 1984 since I was probably 16. So Okay. Yeah. Like 300 years ago. It was. It was like the dinosaur age. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> you didn't even have a smartphone at the time. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. You know, I could have had a smartphone, but mom and dad didn't let me. Big brother would have let you. He would have. Big Brother would have made sure you had a smartphone. So he could track my progress. Exactly. Yeah, my parents were probably a little too paranoid about Big Brother-ish things to let their 16-year-old have a cell phone. Exactly. Yeah. But, no, you're <laughs> you're only safe if you're always plugged in to your technology. Oh. If you're always with other people, you can never be alone. It's, that's, that's, a big, that's a big no-no. Okay. Being alone is bad. All right. And is the main character, what's his name? Winston. Winston. Is he alone sometimes in this book? He is. Yeah. Well, he lives alone because he's not married anymore. Um, well, oh, so divorce is allowed. Well, he's technically still married to Catherine, but they separated a long time ago. I think divorce is like allowed, but she kind of just sort of disappeared. I forget exactly what happened with her. Okay. She wasn't like... Yeah, I don't even remember her being a character. I, I just remembered him being alone. Like, yeah, no, he remembers her sometimes, but she never comes into the story. Okay. So, you know, they don't encourage being alone, but you can live alone. You just really shouldn't spend most time in your house. Like, they want you, like, out at bars and stuff? Or, like, where would he spend his time if he wasn't at work? Yeah, well, he would go... He could go to, like... Um, yeah, you know, he could go for walks in the parks or to cafes and things like that. Okay. Um, where there are, you know, telescreens everywhere and the thought police are listening wherever he goes. Okay. Um, it's not like, it's not horribly taboo to just spend time alone in your house. But even when you're in your house, the telescreen is still there. And the telescreen can watch you. Oh, okay. Okay. And it can hear what you're doing. So there's no privacy, even when you're alone. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, is kind of kind of creepy. Uh, so, yeah, there's a couple of things about 1984 that really struck me. Uh, the whole book struck me very profoundly. Um, everybody always, lots of people talk about how prescient of a book it is and how Orwell really saw where things could go if they were allowed to get out of hand. And, you know, in some ways that's, we're still seeing some of those things happening. Like what? Ingsoc, English socialism, is, is what it's called in the book. Okay. And, uh, you know, there are still people who subscribe to a lot of the, uh, a lot of similar ideas. Like what? These days. Well, just like 
the <laughs> sort of the most entertaining example that I've come across is from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Oh, so not Katniss's you know, companion. That's where my brain went. Oh, from the Hunger Games? <laughs> We're going, no. you know, dystopian. This is, this is not like... a Hunger Games <laughs> reference. Uh, sorry for anybody who was hoping for that. PETA <laughs> tweeted a while back. It said this. Okay, here we go. Don't lose it. We'll want to include it in the description. <laughs> so this is from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. They said, words matter. And as our understanding of social justice evolves, our language evolves along with it. Here is how to remove speciesism from your daily conversations. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of what speciesism is... You can't is, see my face right now, but it just sort of like went into a um, wide-eyed, uh, small-mouthed sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. Speciesism is a form of bigotry that is no longer limited to Star Trek and Star Wars. It's where you have an unfair prejudice against members of another species. So... So against cats, like against if I didn't cats, like cats yeah. or if I didn't like dogs or lizards or spiders. Exactly. Okay. If, if you're a speciesist, specious, specious, I don't know <laughs> what the word would be, but it, if you're that thing, then you're an anti-animal person. So what are these, what are the words? So there are common sayings in the English language that <laughs> are rooted in deep anti-animal biases. Yes. Some of the best writing involves, um, you know, using the natural world as analogies and similes in order to you know, evoke certain ideas and, and feelings in our, in the right, writer. right. But that's, uh, that becomes problematic <laughs> when it's, uh, indicative of bigotry against these, these groups yes, like animals. Sure, sure. So for instance, you know, people will often say that you can kill two birds with one stone, oh, but that's, brutal. that's, that's, yeah, that's brutal and, and violent. So Peter recommends that instead of that, we can say feed two birds with one scone. It's good that they're not feeding them stones, I guess. Exactly. Cause you the know, birds wouldn't eat the stones. I really just don't get that same sort of punch from it though. I'm, it just fails. That doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> what matters is the fact that we're no longer being anti-animal if we say scones. Well, I guess we shouldn't be punching animals with our words anyway. Exactly. Okay, so what else? Words matter. Yes. Um, the expression, be the guinea pig. Oh, no. Uh, instead, you should say, be the test tube. Oh. Because that carries the same kind of connotation because a test tube goes through the same amount of risk as a guinea pig does. I'm sorry, my extreme conservatism is going to come out here any second because all I want to say has to do with, you know, uh, tests done on, on fetuses. Like test tube babies? Yes. Yeah, that's what mom said when I was telling <laughs> oh her about this. Yeah. And then another phrase is beat a dead horse. You know, we can say that. Don't beat the dead horse, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of that, you should say feed a fed horse. Oh, no. <laughs> well, won't the horse get fat? That's That's what I was thinking, yeah. Wow. I was reading some of the comments to this Twitter post <laughs> that PETA made, and yeah, some of these people had had some great insights into that. <laughs> Are we almost done here? We should we should do this. Is one. this is the best okay. one? Bring home the bacon instead of saying that because you shouldn't eat pigs. That's cruel, right? Yeah. You should say bring home the bagels. Wow. Because bagels are just as amazing and nutritious as yeah. bacon is. Anyway, the the point is that. Basically, PETA seems to be taking a cue from Ingsoc here mm -hmm. by saying, look, our, our words matter. So we need to restructure the way that we that we speak about things to reflect the way that 
society is evolving. That we want society to evolve too. Right. It's not just that we want to change the way that we speak in order to um, reflect reality. We want to control reality yes. by controlling the way that we think, the way that we say, speak, the way that we interact so that we can create an ideal world that only exists at the moment in our minds. Exactly. And that's really foundational to what Ingsoc does. Yeah. In 1984, they even have their own language called Newspeak, which is um, an amended form of the English language. It's extremely simplified and it's constantly evolving and they're constantly working on revising it to the point where they estimated in the book that by about the year 2050, there will everybody will speak entirely in Newspeak. It will be completely perfect and it will Basically, the purpose of the language will be to eliminate any possibility of heretical thought. Hmm. Like you won't even be able to have heretical thoughts because you won't have the words to express it to yourself in a thought. Wow. Even. Okay. It's very disturbing. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like a child often will respond emotionally to a circumstance because they have not yet been taught the proper words to use. They don't know what they're feeling, so they just express it. Um, through crying or, or something like that, right? Or throwing a fit. Um, but when you teach them that the, the words that they need in order to say, like, I am frustrated, um, as opposed to I am injured, right? They start to differentiate when, to, when it's appropriate to cry and when it's appropriate to speak. And if you take that away from human beings, that I can't imagine what the emotional consequences right. would be. Well, you've seen The Giver, right? Yeah. Have you read the book also? No. Neither have I. I've only seen the movie. So we're on the same page there. <laughs> We're on the same screen yes. there. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Precision of language, right? That's right. So that, that's exactly what I was going to talk about. In The Giver, there's that concept of precision of language. Yeah. Like Jonas says, Jonas uses the word love at one point, And his father says, don't, don't use that word. It has no meaning for us. You need to be precise in the way that you speak about these things. Otherwise, you're going to introduce confusion. And so... What the society has done is they've removed certain words from their vocabulary. And they've removed the concept even. Right. Yeah. Um, Orwell has a very interesting appendix at the end of the book, which is naturally where you would put an appendix. Oh, okay. Um, on the, it's an essay on the principles of Newspeak. And I just wanted to read an excerpt from it here. It's a really fascinating um, little essay there, especially if you're interested in language. Which you are. Exactly. He says, the purpose of Newspeak was not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to the devotees of Ingsoc, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. It was intended that when Newspeak had been adopted once and for all, and old speak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is, a thought diverging from the principles of Ingsoc, a heretical thought should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words, and by stripping such words as remained of unorthodox meanings, and so far as possible, of all secondary meanings, whatever. So this is just, to me, as a, a lover of literature and of the English language, this is just ghastly, in that they're trying to remove, you know, any secondary meanings to any words, which is the entire basis for poetry, right? Yeah, nuance. It's nuance. Saying one thing to 
indicate another. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Shakespeare created tons of new words. He created tons of new ways of speaking. I mean, most phrases that we have come from something that Shakespeare said, right? And it's not, he didn't create new speak. He created, he took the nuances that already existed in the English language and brought them to light uh, probably a lot quicker than they would have come if we had allowed it, if, if he had never existed, right? Yeah. New speak is a move in the opposite direction <sighs> yeah. from what Shakespeare was doing because yeah. Shakespeare was expanding the language. New speak, the purpose was to reduce it. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that's freaky. So it really disturbs me when I see people today trying to force the language into places that it doesn't go naturally. Yeah. Because it just, it gives me chills and reminds me of Newspeak. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing for slang to exist. Slang is not forced. It's not controlled. You know, Mm -hmm. it's annoying. It can be extremely annoying, especially to a grammarian or a school teacher or librarian, but, um, or a writer, (laughs) but if you, if you have the proper outlook, then slang is just, it's just a way that language is sort of experimenting with itself. Yeah. The human beings are experimenting to see what sticks and what doesn't, what's expressing a current modern fad and what's expressing really bringing to light something that is going to last longer. Um, so, you know, that's rad. That's kind of fallen away. Like no one really uses that anymore, but there's other words that I can't think of at the moment that are so part of our language now, but we're actually slang to begin with. Sure. Like, okay. For instance. Yeah. Okay. All right. There you go. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not that language should never change or that it shouldn't evolve, but that it has to evolve organically. It can't be imposed from the top Mm -hmm. down. That's dangerous. Yeah. Um, but you also can't just let it sort of go by itself. Wild. Yeah. There needs, there needs to be some intentionality to it. Well, there needs to be preservation of it. Yeah. I mean, so when you have an uneducated group of people who don't know how to read, don't know how to write, don't know how to preserve the traditions that have been passed down to them, they lose about half of their vocabulary. Right. Um, and they end up getting stuck in, again, that inability to express themselves, which can often lead to, we look at that, that's like the Huns, like people who have violent tendencies who Mm -hmm. haven't preserved a literary foundation. So when we preserve that, we preserve, um, preserve a better way of living. Yeah. And you also have less need for using, uh, strong language when you have a wider vocabulary. Yeah. Because, you know, Swear words are extremely versatile and they can be used in lots of different instances. So it's really easy to fall back on that and just use those more and more often in the place of other words that might be more you know, appropriate. appropriate to it. And the problem the with that is that the, the is escalation. So you've got, if you're using the F word or the D word all the time, constantly, then when you actually have an emotion to express and you don't have that word at your disposal in order to communicate the, just like the, the total depravity of that situation, um, or, or the total sum of your, your strong feelings, then you can't communicate the strong feelings and you end up needing to invent a new word or invent a new way of expressing that feeling. Right. Which becomes then, uh, it becomes dangerous and it becomes, I don't know what it becomes, maybe unintelligent. Yeah, I would say that. So anyway, in other words, everyone, we should be followers of Henry Higgins and respect Uh, the English language for what it is, the language of Milton and Shakespeare and the Bible. (laughs) And we should uh, 
we should take care of that and preserve it. And we should not let Big Brother and the inner party impose new speak on us. Ah, yes, you, you see you're getting up on your podium at the moment. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I think I think we established already that <laughs> that, that would can be, be a bad. problem. Yes, that would be bad. So, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing that stuck out to me about 1984 was the language. Um, yeah. And it's a super integral part of the story. And then I also found some interesting connections between that and another classic dystopian work that I've read recently, which was Brave New World. That's natural. Yes. Um, <laughs> so they're interesting sort of two sides of the same coin in that... You know, everybody in 1984 is miserable, right? Even the inner party members don't really claim to be happy, mm. per se. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Brave New World, everybody's happy, right? Mm-hmm. It's all like happy-go-lucky, fluffy. I was already thinking of that when you were talking about Newspeak, because there is no such thing as Newspeak in Brave New World. If anything, the language has uh, become very emotionally oriented, Um Especially when you're talking about the giver, they like eliminate the word love. In Brave New World, love is overused. Well, I don't know that they use the word love per se in Brave New World because they don't have much of a concept of love. They have a concept of the carnal aspect. So they use it inappropriately. Um, I'm not saying that they have a proper understanding of love, but they seem to pursue that uh, passion over and above other things. Um, Certainly more than 1984. Mm -hmm. 1984 is practically banned to have any passion. Except, well, you're only allowed to have passion in specific areas, specifically passion for the party and against the enemies of the party, which is why you have, you know, the two minutes hate every week Mm -hmm. where everybody in Winston's apartment goes into a room, they sit down and the telescreen plays a video of Goldstein, who is the leader of the rebellion, who at the end of the day, we're not even entirely sure if he He exists exists or not, but the idea of him has to exist. So that during this two-minute video about um, the enemy of the party, all the people in the room can get super angry mm-hmm. and like they even start throwing things at the telescreen because they, they just have all of this pent-up frustration, all this pent-up emotion that they're never allowed to display mm-hmm. except during, during this particular session. But this that's particular controlled outlet. passion, which is different even. Like Brave New World, it's they're okay with... They're people just having fun. Yeah. Being, you know, pursuing whatever whim comes into their head so long as it's not dangerous to their system, which I think is, I, I, I expected Brave New World to, to feel like 1984 when I was first. Right. But it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't. just feels like you're inundated with like fluff. Yeah. Just so much fluff. And it makes you want to gag, mm-hmm. which is, you know, well, that's what happens to the savage in it, right? The guy from outside who comes into the society, he throws up rather often just from the sheer horror of how disgustingly soft everything is in that world. Yeah. I think what's so frightening about both of the books is that you read both and they are so like, they just seem like diametrically opposed. And yet you find aspects of both of them very strongly in our current world. I mean, they both, they're both products of our current world from about, you know, the late 18th century onward. And so, sorry, late 19th century onward. Yeah, they were both written mid-20th century. Yeah, yeah. So, so really that culmination from the 19th century onward. 
it's so weird though, that like one is just all passions and the other one is, you know, unrestrained passion. The other one is controlled passion or no passion at all. You got new speak, you got emotional speak, you know, emotional speech. And yet they're both just two things cannot both be and not be at the same time. And yet they do, they exist. They're, they're both part of our culture and it's like, they're two different messages that we receive from our culture in a lot of ways. And yet they're, they're both part of that same culture. Can you elaborate? Can you be a little more specific about what you mean by that? So in our culture, it's very, you, you feel pushed towards uh, the sensual, towards sexual activity, just constant right. and, and unrestrained. Um, and yet you have this, you, you have that PETA thing that you were reading about, you know, controlling the language. Um, you know, you can't, uh, not that racism is good, but that there's this move now to sort of balloon the idea of racism into every corner of society. So yeah. instead of instead of it just being that some people are angry at other people, which is a terrible reality, now people have gone too far the other way and they've looked at it and they've said, you can't see differences between men and women. You can't see differences between one species and another, between one animal and another. And um, that's very, it's very controlled. It's yeah. very uh, imposed. And neither one of that, that reality doesn't necessarily exist in 1984 or Brave New World, but um, it feels very false in that sort of just how extreme it is. Um, also, the the extreme that that sort of that two minute hate where like we only hate the things that we're told to hate, that feels very real. Um, like the hashtag Me Too movement, things like that, where like, you you just you literally go to certain channels and social media certain pages and you know the only emotion you're going to feel when you go there is hatred yeah it's the only emotion you're allowed to feel that you have to feel indignation towards this to particular group group of people right yeah and you can't raise any uh, you can't voice any opposition to the hashtag me too movement without you know all of this criticism coming crashing down on you now you can't question what's going on there. And I'm not saying I'm not a, saying that men should be allowed to get away with anything that they want, sexually speaking. Right, because it's you can't even have a medium opinion. Right. <laughs> it must be extreme. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be evened out. And I think what's interesting also about 1984 is the party members are the ones who go to this two minutes hate thing. They're the ones whose lives are constantly monitored by the telescreens and everything. Mm -hmm. But they're actually a very small percentage of society. There's an even smaller percentage who are the inner party members, and they're the ones who really actually know what's going on. Uh, the oligarchy. Yes. Uh, the world controllers in Brave New World. But also in 1984, the vast majority of people are the proletariats. Oh, and also the pigs. I just wanted to bring up that I read um, Animal Farm in preparation for this. Oh, that's and right. The pigs are that minority group. Yes. The pigs yeah. know what's what. Yes. They understand what's really happening. But yeah, in 1984, most, most of humanity is limited to the proletariat or the proles, as the party members call them, in 1984. And they live lives that are animalistic in a lot of ways. They don't right, have. I forgot about them. They don't have all of these exactly. <laughs> they don't have all of these impositions imposed on them. Dang it! I just said impositions imposed. Ugh. They don't have all of these restrictions imposed on them. Okay. Or impositions restricted onto them, maybe. Oh. I should stop. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Tim likes language. <laughs> they don't have 
telescreens watching them all the time. They're not monitored by the thought police. They are allowed to procreate whenever they want to. They, but they just live at the bottom of society. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly poor, poorer even than the regular party members who are also very poor. And their lives are basically completely insignificant to the party. So, and is, is the point then that there's really, there's only so many people that you can control in a society? Well, the thing is that they do control the proletariat mm-hmm. to an extent. Yeah, but not by, their thought. No, they don't. But what they do with them is they're, they're sort of living lives more similar to the people in Brave New World. I was thinking that. Yeah. And that they do, you know, this mundane work all day, but they're given all of these outlets for for their emotions. Mm-hmm. Like all of their films and books are just rampant pornography, for instance. Right. And it just keeps everything that they're given by the party keeps them completely sedated. It's the epitome yeah. of the bread and circuses concept. So then maybe the point of maybe Aldous Huxley and George Orwell's, you know, they're both getting to the basis of a truth, which is that the only way to control a large mass of people is to keep them uneducated and passionate. Mm-hmm. So, so basically removing reason from the equation entirely for the, for the small group of people that they're controlling right. in 1984, there's this where they where they've got new speak and everything. There's this, um, there's a fake rationality, right? They're like, they're rewriting the way that they think. Yeah. They're, whereas it seems like with the proletariats, is that what that's called? The proletarians. Proletarians. They're, they're just removing thought entirely. Yeah. Interesting. As much as they can. Interesting. Well, and Winston recognizes the fact that they're not, you know, that they have less control over the proles mm-hmm. in 1984, which is why he writes in his diary, if there is hope, it lies in the proles. Okay. The proles are the only people who could possibly get away with starting a revolution because the members of the party are too closely monitored for that. But then he goes on to say, until the proles become conscious, they will never rebel. And until they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious. Mm-hmm. So the proles are kind of stuck in the situation where they could do something if they wanted to. But they don't even realize that they want to do it. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure how all that is achieved in the book. It doesn't go into too much detail, which kind of gives me hope that maybe it's not possible, that maybe we can't actually get to the situation depicted in 1984. Well, no, because there's always going to be individuals born who, regardless of how they're treated, will see that there could be more, and right. they will they will act on that. Now, if those if those individuals are born into the party, mm-hmm. they will be quashed. Exactly. Like Winston was. Like Winston. Spoiler alert, Winston gives up in the end. Yeah. And they, they get him. The very last line of the book is, he loved Big Brother. Even though he knows the entire rationale behind what Ingsoc does, what the party does. Yeah. Yet in spite of it all, he loves Big Brother. And that that's the really disturbing part about it, is that he does get broken in the end. Yeah. So... The point of the book is to show that when you have this amount of control over somebody, no matter what that person does, you're always going to be able to break him. But 
if you don't have that kind of control over somebody in the proletariat, maybe there's hope. It's unlikely there would be incredible odds. So do you do you find it believable then? 1984? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In terms of how Ingsoc is set up and everything. Sure, but also that they like that they break him like that. Oh yeah. I'm kind of surprised it took as long as it did. Okay. But no, I could totally follow his his train of thought and sequence of emotions throughout the whole thing. And yeah. it was I, I could tell for a while that that was the only way that it could end. But I was hoping against hope anyway that it wouldn't end like that. <laughs> I remember you going back to it um, one night. You're like, oh, I'm going to read 1984. And you looked really depressed. And I was like, oh, is it towards the end? You're like, yeah, I, I think he still might find a way out. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything. I wouldn't give up. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty sad. But, you know, that's that's the way it goes. That's Yeah, it was how it had to end. Okay. I found I was looking at the relationship between the last sentence, which is he loved Big Brother, and the first sentence of the book, which is it was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. So thirteen being you know one o'clock in the twelve-hour counting system, mm-hmm. but it, I think it's significant that the number was thirteen from the very beginning, because thirteen is the unlucky number. The series of unfortunate events books always have thirteen chapters. Yeah. 13 is always a symbol of bad luck. Interesting. So George Orwell was lemony snicketing us mm-hmm. at the very beginning, saying this is going to end badly. You read so much into language. I love it. Thanks. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I love language. It's fun. So do you have any other things to talk about? Oh, I had a couple other things. Um, you want to talk about Animal Farm, though, for a minute? Sure. Because it's been since high school, since I read it, so about 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And... But you you just reread it, so what are your thoughts? Do you have any further thoughts about that? Well, I think the one thing I, I was I really hadn't forgotten most of the book. Um, like I remembered the basics and stuff. Yeah. But I think the the thing that most surprised me when I was listening, I listened to it on audiobook, and I think the thing that most surprised me was how easy it was to understand the cultural references that he was making. Uh, in high school, I. I read uh, the wrong things into some things. Like, I put the wrong importance on certain aspects. Um, I kind of thought that it was sort of like a animal rights novel. Um, <laughs> and, yep. Um, PETA would be now, proud, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> reading it now, it was, uh, I, I was very much, uh, it, I, that wasn't, he wasn't even going there. Um, I, knowing so much more about the Bolsheviks and, and the Russian, uh, the Gulag and, the concentration camps of World War II. There's so knowing so much more about the the cultural context in which Animal Farm was written, and the specific events that took place in that time period. Yeah, um, it was very obvious what was happening. Um, and uh, Napoleon blamed everything on I can't remember his name, but there's this one pig who, along with Napoleon, is like leading the revolution. Oh, that's right. And he's got all these plans and they're like good plans to actually help the farm and then napoleon says like i oppose him he opposes this pig and everything that he says or everything that he thinks just for the sake of opposition and then the scapegoat yes the scape pig well he's not yet but he he gets there when he says suddenly he like napoleon raises these little dogs from puppies and he hides them away from all the other animals and then when the dogs are full grown he releases them and they chase 
the other pig out of the farm and he runs away and everyone else is just stunned. All the other animals, they can't believe it. And they didn't even know at first who these dogs were, where'd they come from? And they realized that they were the puppies that Napoleon had bravely taken upon himself to raise. And um, so it was just... He's a good big brother, isn't he? Yeah, so he chases this other pig away. And then for the rest of the book, anything bad that happens on the farm, they say that it's this pig coming back and sabotaging things. Exactly. He's they, gold They never see right? him. Yeah. Yes. They never see him, but they always they said that he's the one that they center not their anger upon. The, the animals never seem to get very angry. In okay. fact, the only times that they do is against Napoleon himself. But then his uh, smooth-talking mediator pig will come in and, and talk them out of it. What, Squealer or something like that? Uh, it's, some, it's not Squealer, but it is something like that. But Squeakity he will come squeak. In, uh, yeah, he'll come in and calm them down. But they get more sad when they hear about snow Snowtail? Something like that. Ah, the pig almost. that was chased away. Yes, yes, I can't remember his name. Something like that. Um. So yeah. So he. That's because pigs are more sympathetic. Or animals are more sympathetic creatures than humans. Snowball. 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 That's it. Yes. Yeah. So the animals are very. They're they're very tame. They're they're not. Um, the only reason that they got incited to revolution against the farmer in the first place was because of the pigs. So the pigs are the only ones that aren't tame. They're right. Um. But then when it, when it ends and. They realize, all the animals realize that the pigs and the animal and the humans look exactly the same. I always, I I thought since high school that that was some like reflection on how human beings will, on animal rights basically. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I know, but it's it's not. It's just so clearly just this, you know, that that human beings will degenerate into, well, it's not even about animals. It's, It's about one class of people saying that they're nothing like this other class of people, but then they become them anyway. And that's just so French Revolution. It was blatantly obvious. There's a Bob Dylan song. I can't think of, I can't think right now what the song is called, but there's a great line in it saying with a soldier's stance, I aimed my hand at the mongrel dogs who teach fearing not. I'd become my enemy in the instant that I preach. Basically, like, raising yourself up in opposition against this other person, but not realizing that you're literally becoming that person yeah. by by the way that you're opposing them. Yeah, and that was just so clear. So the pigs are, they're the, it was more French Revolution than anything else. I mean, there were definitely references to World War II, to uh, the Russia, Russian, to Russian, communism. Russian communism, but French Revolution was the biggest uh, reference that it was making. And... The, the humans didn't treat the animals quite right. But by the end, the pigs treated them worse. Yeah. And and yet, yet the animals worked harder and thought that they were more free. And so they didn't even oppose it. Sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. At the end of the day, you love Big Brother. Yeah. And the other thing that I kept thinking of when you were talking about Newspeak, and also in 1984, they'll like go back and, and rewrite former events that yeah. have taken place, right? So that, like, people can never claim, so, like, they might say that they remember something happening, but then they look back and they can't find that thing ha- ever happening, so they start to doubt that it ever did happen. Right. That's um, Winston's entire job, is rewriting old yeah. newspaper articles. Right. So that's very, uh, that happens in Animal Farm. And Animal Farm is convenient, because it's just this little microcosm of yeah. what's going on, right? Um, so that at the very beginning of the re- their revolution, after they drive the farmers away, they put up these put up these signs on the side of the fence and the, they're like the five rules or something. 
maybe yeah. seven. I don't remember how many rules there were, but there were a bunch of rules and only a couple of the animals were able to read. So by the end, every time the pigs did something that, that someone thought was against one of the rules, this one horse who could kind of read, she'd go and she'd try to make it out and she'd get another animal to help her and they would read them. And there'd always be something added on at the end that they had forgotten about. Right. So no animal was to sleep in a human bed. That was a rule. Yeah. Which is, I mean, the rules to begin with are dumb. Okay. The rules to begin with are concentrating on the wrong things. But Except for the one that says all animals are equal, right? Yes, there is that one. Yes. So there's so the one about the beds is that by the end of that at the end of that rule, they change it to no animals to sleep on a human bed with sheets. Ah. So they sleep on these beds but they don't put sheets on them, which is just like that's even that state of it is like they they take this good thing and they make it worse <laughs> so they can have something approaching that good. It's it's yeah. very twisted. And then to so the equal one is obviously like the most the most memorable one which is that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's at the very end of the story. Don't they go in to look at the rules and that's the only one that's left? Wow, that might be true. I might have spaced out at the end while I was listening. I'm pretty sure that that's the only rule that's left. That's possible. And it's been amended to read that. Yeah. So that oh, they've, yeah, they've established total control. Years and years go, control. go by several generations by that point. Yeah, yeah, that does sound right. Yeah. And um, the other thing that really struck me was just the sheep. Every time the animals would start to get angry or oppose Napoleon or uh, his mediator pig, um, Napoleon had trained the sheep to chant. <laughs> and Of course, it would be the sheep. They right? would That's always, not symbolic at all. <laughs> right? They'd always say, uh, two legs bad. Four legs, good. And um, they even had to talk the animals into accepting that... What about the chickens? That the chickens actually did not have two legs. They had four legs because... Oh. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> because humans did things with their hands that, that chickens didn't do. Right. So therefore they had four legs. That makes... Yeah. Well, the, there's a similar concept in 1984. Something that they keep going back to is that you know, Winston needs to be made to believe that two plus two can equal five. Wow. When the party says that two plus two equals five, he then it equals five. It. And then at the very end. Even when he knows that it doesn't. Yeah. At the very end, Napoleon does something. And when everyone's about to get angry, the sheep start chanting. And they chant, four legs good, two legs better. Wow. Yep. Wait, so... He changed it. Oh, he took them away and that's tra right. trained them. Because he started wearing men's clothing. Right? And walking around and walking on two on legs. Two legs. Yep. Can pigs even do that? Uh, no. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> we'll finish up. <laughs> Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget. Finally, if you would like to support us in our endeavors here, please tell your friends about this podcast and about our website. And you can also visit thefairytaleblog.com slash donate if you would like to contribute monetarily.